Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter turning out to be quite an exciting week on the interest rate front. We've seen two major interest rate moves from uh, the US Federal Reserve and from the Bank of England. Um, I think both of those moves and the statements that accompanied both of those interest rate moves uh, warrants quite a significant discussion today. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some Irish data that I wrote about on our Substack account, uh, particularly the exchequer returns and the remarkable tax revenue buoyancy that we continue to see. Um, I I think we have to mention at least once um, Sinn Féin's latest antics in relation to the sacking of the chief economist in the Department of Finance. And um, Twitter seems to be the gift that keeps giving at the moment. So if we have time, I think we should have a brief discussion on what's happening with Twitter. Um, We got the US Federal Reserve this week increasing interest rates by 75 basis points or three quarters of 1%. And the accompanying statement and the press conference afterwards did throw the markets into a little bit of turmoil, a little bit of frenzy. There was an expectation that perhaps the Federal Reserve uh, chairman would suggest that the end was nigh and that the, as they now call it, the terminal rate of interest, which I would describe as the peak rate of interest, is probably higher than the markets and the rest of us currently believe. So that was a significant statement. And in the Bank of England today, we got a 
three quarters of one percent increase in rates, and which was the highest, or the largest rate increase in I think thirty years. And the statement accompanying that was quite extraordinary, um, suggesting that over the next couple of years inflation was going to fall significantly, but also more importantly indicating a belief that the UK economy is already in recession. Increasing interest rates by 0.75% in an environment where inflation, sorry, where the economy is already in recession um, seems quite extraordinary to me. Um, But mad things going on with central bankers at the moment. We've got in the States the federal funds rate, which is their bank rate against which all mortgages and other loans that companies and individuals make is benchmarked off. That's reaching 4% now after their three quarters of a point rise. And they're suggesting using that strange language. And I think it's important to stress that we've never heard this idea of a terminal rate before. One of the many things that leads me to think that these people don't know what they're doing to the extent that they ever did is the fact that they are making up new pieces of jargon. Uh, The idea that an interest rate is terminal suggests in some way that you've reached an end or perhaps a permanent, semi-permanent point. And of course, interest rates never stay where they are. They they can do for a little while, but they always change. So there's no way that this is an end point. Um, As you say, a better use of language would, would be the peak. And they tried to signal it was currently going to be higher and stay there for longer than markets currently think. The opposite is true in the UK. We got the same rate rise, 75 basis points or three quarters of one percentage point to 3% in the UK, accompanying rhetoric that didn't use strange language like terminal rates, but strongly tried to suggest that markets were quite wrong in their expectations where interest rates are likely to peak or to end up or to be at a terminal rate. So the Federal Reserve tried very hard to be nasty and the Bank of England tried to be dovish. One of the consequences of that now is that sterling is uh, quite a bit lower than it was um, when it came into the to the morning. And the UK stock market, for what it's worth, is actually a little bit up. But US stock markets are down. So financial markets are reacting perhaps in the ways that we would expect to the, to the rhetoric. But Jim, let me ask you a question. And this is one for anybody that's ever done an economics O-level or junior cert business or any of those very basic courses We're taught that interest rates should be set for the target that they're trying to hit. In the case of Europe, it's inflation and only inflation. In the case of the United States, it's the overall economy, particularly unemployment and inflation. So they've got one instrument, interest rates, and two targets, the economy and inflation. And we're taught at a very young age that you can't have two targets and one instrument. It doesn't work mathematically, in theory, or indeed in practice. But nevertheless, this is what we've got in the States. In Europe, we've got one target, one instrument. And we're told that you say, okay, you want an inflation rate of X, and that means an interest rate of Y. And that's it. Nobody ever teaches us or says or writes that the way in which you achieve that target level of interest rates to achieve your target level of inflation is that you move there in a series of steps. Why don't they just put the interest rate at where it should be in order to achieve their target rate? So there's an awful lot of the practice of central banking that is, frankly, hocus pocus. And I think is being revealed to be really making it up as they go along. Uh, The idea that you are now going to 
raise interest rates today and more in the future to drive the economy ever deeper into recession to meet your target. And I've mentioned target of X in all across the world. It's usually 2% inflation. And in order to get 2% inflation at the moment, in current circumstances, because inflation is currently close to 10% around the world, the reason for that, at least half of it, if not more, is down to energy and food prices. Interest rates will have zero impact on those. So in order to get inflation down to 2%, you've got to impact on all the things that are affected by interest rates. And that essentially is your domestic economy. So if you take these guys at their word, they're determined to drive the domestic economy into the ground to meet their 2% inflation target. It's nuts. It's crazy. It's insane. It makes no sense whatsoever, in my view. And I think that when the Finnish prime minister the other day started to suggest that central banks' democratic accountability, democratic legitimacy will be called into question, by these tactics, I think that she was absolutely right. And lots of others are asking this question as well. I think they are getting it wrong. And I think we're going to look back on 2022 as the year of the great monetary policy, the great interest rate mistake, when central banks compounded their initial errors during the pandemic with this raising interest rates too far, too high for too long. Difficult to argue with that, to be honest, because um, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, at the end of August, global central bankers in their annual get together, uh, particularly the European and the US side, basically made it quite clear that they were prepared to tolerate recession, higher unemployment in order to try and break this cycle of inflation becoming embedded in the system. And true to their words, that's exactly what they've been doing, particularly since August. We've seen a lot of aggressive interest rate increasing. You know, we've spoken about the US and the UK over the last couple of days. Um, And it's an interesting question you ask about um, central bankers moving in gradual steps to try and take interest rates to a level that they believe is consistent with the inflation target. And you ask the very valid question, well, why don't you just go from wherever you are, say zero in the case of most central banks in recent months, to the level you believe is consistent with that inflation target. And um, I think the reason is that the reason why that doesn't happen is, number one, that sort of interest rate increase in one sudden go would probably be too much of a shock for anybody to withstand, particularly the markets and economies. And secondly, and I think this is probably more the case, that central bankers have not got a clue at the moment. They are, they appear to be making it up as they go along. Um, I, I, I reckon if you asked any central banker um, where they believe interest rates should be at this stage, they wouldn't have a bloody clue. I think that's uh, always true, Jim. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And the point, of course, is, is that I set up the thought experiment in a slightly unfair way for central bankers in the sense that I said that if you want inflation to be 2%, then you use your economic theories and your economic models to say, well, interest rates should be 6% or whatever the number is. Of course, they don't know what the right level of interest rate is at any moment in time. But particularly today, they haven't got a clue. And this pretense to knowledge, this this sense that they are this all omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful central bankers who know what they're doing, it's just a load of bollocks, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Chris, you tweeted something um, after the Bank of England move um, and following that 
statement from the Bank of England about uh, the belief that the UK economy is already in recession and yet they deliver one of the most aggressive interest rate increases in three decades or whatever. You tweeted that this was a good argument for independence to be taken back off the Bank of England. And if you remember in the pre-1997 period uh, when the Bank of England was subject to political influence, we had an incredibly volatile economic cycle. Sterling was an incredibly volatile problem. That obviously created massive problems for Ireland, given our dependence on the UK economy and on sterling. Then when Tony Blair became prime minister in 1997, one of the first things he did was to give operational independence to the Bank of England and Gordon Brown um, as chancellor had responsibility for setting the inflation target that was given to the Bank of England. And then it was up to the Bank of England to deliver that target. And over a number of years, that policy appeared to work very well. Uh, the UK economy did become more stable. Sterling did become more stable. Inflation remained pretty close to that target range for a long number of years. So perhaps that would suggest that giving independence, operational independence to the Bank of England actually worked. It was a very good policy. But the counter argument to that is that everything that happened in the decade or so after 1997, and indeed a little bit longer, well, probably a decade, actually, the Bank of England was incredibly fortuitous in the sense that the global economy became much more stable, inflation became much more stable. And, um, you know, it, it would have been difficult for the Bank of England to make a balls of it in that sort of environment. Uh, but then when the real test has come, you know, with the global financial crisis and with COVID and now with this cost of living crisis em um, emanating from uh, the Ukrainian situation and, of course, the post-COVID world, um, central banks are shown, well, the Bank of England's shown to have um, really not a clue as to what it's doing at the moment. In the case of the Federal Reserve, you know, that the Federal Reserve has always, as you described, has a balanced mandate in a sense that it has given, on the one hand, inflation to be to remain relatively stable. That's around 2% in US language. And, you know, keeping an eye on what's happening in the economy and particularly with employment. So that sort of balanced mandate was always used, uh, well, sorry, I always used it, I should say, as an argument as to why uh, the US economy grew, outperformed the Eurozone economy um, over a number of years in terms of growth, in terms of unemployment, whereas the European Central Bank's mandate was very much a sole mandate, which was 2% inflation, full stop. And um, that was changed a little bit over the last couple of years in the sense that there was a little bit of economic growth brought into this, the European Central Bank's mandate in a pretty non-formal way. But you, you are shattering, actually, my whole understanding and belief in the role and the effectiveness of central bankers. And, um, OK, it's easy for you to shatter at the moment because when you look at what central bankers are doing, um, I think they're shattering that illusion themselves. Um, it's it's a it's a pretty bizarre scenario, and I, I really would love to come back and look, you know, back with the benefit of hindsight, and answer your question: What would twenty twenty two go down in history as the year that central bankers made 
one of the most dramatic and drastic monetary policy mistakes in the history of central banking. I'm paraphrasing you a little bit. Yeah, I put that in a tweet that their central, the central banking independence should be called into question. Um, the longer essay length answer rather than a tweet would be that I think the fundamental problem is that, is that in the current circumstances, the thing that's wrong is the target. Having a 2% overall inflation target makes no sense when the source of inflation is not in the gift of interest rates to sort out. There is no level of interest rates that will cause Putin to turn the gas back on. There is no level of interest rates that will get the oil price down. Unless you drive interest rates to the point where your economies go into absolute depression and the demand for gas and oil collapses such that their price starts to go down because the demand for their... Because, yeah, for the wrong reasons. But that, that kind of unemployment, that kind of misery that you would inflict on all of us would be politically absolutely unbearable and it wouldn't last for very long. They're not going to try that. So I think that we're in a game of pretense. They're pretending they can get inflation down to 2% overall inflation and they can't. There's no level of interest rates that would deliver 2% inflation at the moment because they can't get oil and gas prices down. And until that happens, the right thing to do would be to raise the inflation target, is to accept the inflation that you're getting from oil and gas and make sure that you keep sat on domestically generated inflation. That would be a much more grown-up approach. It would be too complicated for these people to seem seemingly to sort out, but that's the right thing to do. They're operating with the wrong target. So and tell me, Chris, do, do, are you arguing that as economic circumstances change, that the inflation target should be sufficiently flexible? In to extremis. Deal with that? I argue that you should change the inflation target in extremis. And okay. I think... It's not controversial to assert that we are in extremists. We are in very extreme circumstances. There's a bloody war going on in Europe, for example. Uh, Gas prices at their peak had gone up by a factor of seven. Now, to suggest that the right policy response is to crush your domestic economy because gas prices have gone up by a factor of seven is ridiculous. Chris, do you remember the concept of the misery index? Oh, yes, I do. I think we're, we're about to relive it, aren't we? We aren't. We just and for for listeners, the misery index is basically when you add the unemployment rate to the rate of inflation. Yeah. And uh, that was an indicator of how much misery we were living in. And of course, for the last couple of decades with inflation very well uh, controlled with a a reasonably decent global economic environment, most of the time with a few exceptions, uh, the misery index was pretty low. And it it lost a lot of relevance. But it's about to at take, risk well, of being um, miserable, this discussion that we've had, which might sound a bit dry, a bit technical about central banks and their targets and their monetary policies and their this and their that. But this will have an impact on everybody's lives. Everybody that is listening will be impacted by this big time. If they continue on the current road, the already big signs of the world economy slowing down, you can see it in the, the trade statistics around the world. Um, the, all those supply chain worries have gone away because demand has gone away and the supply chain thing has worked its way out. The cost of transporting goods across oceans is collapsing. It rose after the pandemic. And I could go on. The silicon chip shortage that we, when we began this podcast, actually, that was one of the hot topics that the reason why you couldn't buy a new car at any price at that particular time was because of a shortage of chips that meant the cars couldn't be built. That's all gone. 
you know, you're arguing that over 50% of inflation is caused by give energy take, and give food. Or give or take. Yeah, I think it's a little bit higher than that. But anyway, there is a, counter, a contrary argument out there that the, the reason why we're seeing all this inflation at the moment was very predictable. It's because of a decade of very expansionary monetary policy with historically low interest rates, with negative bond yields, and most importantly, well, it's tied into negative bond yields, but most importantly, the um, the whole process of quantitative easing and the pumping of money supply into the global banking system and the global economy, that this inevitably was going to give rise to a serious outbreak of inflation and that tightening monetary policy in the current environment through interest rates and quantitative tightening, in other words, selling bonds again, is exactly the way that should, that that's the route that central bankers should follow. I mean, how do you respond to that contrary argument? It's wrong. That's how I respond to it. I think that the right way to think about the previous decade prior to the pandemic and particularly prior to the war is that we were in danger, we being both sides of the Atlantic, but particularly our side, Europe, not Ireland, but Europe, was that we were turning into Japan. And of course, that that means that no matter how much money you print, um, there's nothing that you can do to get your economy going for demographic, for previous bad policy and all sorts of other reasons. And it was the pandemic and the war have combined to produce this surge in inflation, which uh, I think is going to prove temporary. Um, I think that with we said before, within a few years, we're going to be back to, to those low interest rate environments. But I think it's going to take years now. And I really worry that during those years, we're going to have a very bad real economic outcome with respect to GDP growth, jobs, and all the rest of it. And it will vary from country to country, but I'd be particularly concerned about the UK, because I think it's going to be very bad here. Um, And inevitably, the small open economy that is Ireland is not immune from this. Um, It was always going to be miserable because of the rise in energy prices, because of the war, because of all of the things that flow from that. But I do think that policy in various countries, is making it worse. Monetary policy is making it worse in Europe. Monetary and fiscal policy is making it worse in the UK. And by by making it worse, I mean making everyday lives worse. Luckily for you in Ireland, fiscal policy is operating appropriately. We've said it before, and I think it's worth hammering away at that. The fiscal policy is, is doing a good job in Ireland. The ECB isn't doing as bad a job as the Bank of England and the Fed is doing, but I worry about what they're about to do. Christine Lagarde has joined the tub-thumping macho rhetoric only today, saying that even if the Eurozone economy is in recession, she's still going to raise rates. I believe she was on the Late Late Show last Friday night. I didn't see uh, it. uh, No, neither did I. I haven't seen the Late Late Show since um, Pat Kenny's days. Apparently, she said that inflation came out of nowhere. Well, that's not true, is it? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So there's a huge central bank credibility problem. Chris, you mentioned the fiscal policy in Ireland and, you know, the okay, before I actually go on to the Irish situation, you know, you were talking about the Bank of England's tightening, the impact on the UK economy. And on November 17th, Jeremy Hunt is going to present his medium-term fiscal plan, which will envisage a significant um, curtailing of expenditure and increases in taxation. What sort of impact is that likely to have? Well, we've talked about this before, Jim. When you've got, as we have been told today, an economy in recession, We have been told by the governor of the Bank of England today that the economic shocks hitting the UK and therefore other economies, not unlike Ireland, are worse now than the 1970s. So, Chris, were Liz Ross and Quasi Quartang correct in their mini budget strategy? Absolutely not. That was nuts as well. Of course it was. Um, But it was a very expansionary fiscal policy. And I'm not suggesting that fiscal policy could could be expansionary in the UK. Um, I, I think that you need to be... You need both arms of policy to be working together, not in opposite directions, which was the fear that was going to emerge from that particular mini budget. And what you need is fiscal policy trying, allow what we used to call the automatic stabilizers, Jim, to operate. Don't do anything dramatic to headline tax rates or to headline spending numbers. Just let the the economy do what it does um, to to fiscal policy. And that means that in in a recession, tax revenues fall and spending rises. Allow that to happen without messing with it, and let monetary policy be sensible. And in this particular case, it's a tap on the brakes rather than a slam on the brakes that I'm talking about. So it's a better monetary fiscal policy mix um, is is, is what's required. Okay. Um, As you know, here in Ireland on September 27th, we had an 11.3 billion budget package, which was in absolute terms the most expansionary we've ever seen in this country, in absolute terms. That's because you've okay. got the money. Exactly. I was just going to say that. Here I mean, in the UK, we, don't, we, we ain't got it. That, that was based on nine months tax revenue data up to the end of September. And well, sorry, it was up to the end of August. I beg your pardon. Yeah, we don't, we'd only eight months data on Exchequer, on the public finances and tax revenues. Um, and, you know, the... I guess the very positive reaction to the Irish budgetary strategy was that it did not involve borrowing. It came out of budget surpluses that were driven by tax revenue buoyancy. And that even after that 11.3 billion package, Ireland projected to run a surplus this year and a more significant one next year. So the Irish public finances driven by tax revenue buoyancy in a very healthy state. And yesterday we got the exchequer returns to the end of October. So we now have 10 months date. And I know November is an incredibly important month for um, self-employed tax returns, for corporation tax returns. Um, but so there's, there's still a distance to go. But um, the story for the first 10 months of the year is quite extraordinary here. We collected 63.9 billion. That's up 25.5% on the same period last year. That's equivalent to a tax overshoot of almost 13 billion compared to last year. And within that, income tax continues to grow very strongly. Um, 23.9 billion collected, up 15.5%. Jim, I don't want to interrupt you, but but I'm going to. 
Um, do you remember during the financial crisis, George Osborne made a big deal, and indeed others made a big deal about the dig out that he gave Ireland? I do indeed. Do you think that you might be prepared to, you know, do us a favour in return? I mean, you've, you, you've clearly got a lot of money there. I mean, and we haven't got any and we need it. Um, what do you think? <laughs> of course we would, Chris. I think the bargaining chip here... For all will time's be, sake. <laughs> the bargaining chip here will be uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol. But I mean, you, you interrupted me, Chris. We, I, I'm sure the Irish nation would be absolutely thrilled to bail the UK now, out. I formally propose that the, the UK apply, applies for an Irish bailout. Okay, Chris, let, got, let's, get back, let's get back on track we're here. We're the best of friends. You know, we, we go back a long way. I was describing what happened on the income tax side, incredible buoyancy, uh, reflecting the strength of the labour market, the quality of the employment we're creating and the progressive nature of our income tax system. Um, it, corporation tax continues to blow out the lights, 16.2 billion, up 69% or 6.6 billion on the same period last year. And this year, we're going to take in over 20 billion in corporation tax. Um, And 10 years ago, we were taking in about 4 billion. So the whole corporation tax buoyancy continues to be pretty dramatic. And indeed, corporation tax has now become, it has overtaken VAT as the second most significant tax heading. Okay, and and that is pretty dramatic stuff. But the Department of Finance and the Minister of Finance, Pascal Donoghue, after the release of the end October exchequer returns, came out with statements that, um, you know, we need to be careful about this corporate tax revenue buoyancy, that it's not permanent, that we shouldn't be spending money on the back of a tax take um, that is could prove transitory. And also a suggestion that corporation tax was totally um, uh, flattering the overall tax revenue buoyancy. So I just tested that out a little bit. I took corporation tax out of the equation and we still discovered that excluding corporation tax, tax revenues in the first 10 months of the year, over 15% um, above where they were last year, that's an increase of over 6 billion. So the tax revenue buoyancy is coming through on all fronts here. And I think there is no more positive or more accurate indicator of what's happening in the economy than the taxes that are being paid and collected. So the Irish economic story is still a remarkable one. And that that tax situation just shows you when you're running budget surpluses, how you can actually deliver a counter-cyclical fiscal policy, which is exactly what the Irish government did in the budget. So long may it continue, in my view. It's a lesson, a of, It's a lesson, yeah. if you don't mind me saying, in a couple of things. First of all, in economics, as in life, you need to get lucky. And countries need to be lucky in, in the sense that growth, economic growth, an aspect of it is mysterious, that you just need to be at the right place at the right time for it to happen. And different countries have very different experiences. There's no magic formula, no magic wand that you can wave. Say, if we do this, we'll get that growth rate. It doesn't happen like that. But there is, there are things that you can do to help growth, to help produce the kind of economy that Ireland has got today. And that is through economic policy. Economic policy, for good or ill, is extremely consequential. It never doesn't matter. Uh, at the turn of the last century, Argentina and the United States were at very similar stages of economic development, and they were both as rich as each other. 
and they both had fantastic endowments of natural resources, lots of land, great climate, and lots of things going for them. The United States took the path that's led it to become the richest country in the world today. Argentina didn't, all through economic policy choices over many years. And that's the final lesson. Ireland is where it is at today because of decisions taken over many years and a bit of luck as well. Economic policy is very consequential. You can continue doing as well as you are, basically by continuing to do the things that you do, obviously with better housing and health policies, and we won't go into that debate today. Or you can elect somebody like Sinn Féin, in which their policies will be consequential and perhaps go the way of Argentina as well. But uh, enough Sinn Féin bashing for one podcast. I interrupted you again, Jim. Apologies. Yeah, I, w- I was just going to say that as as well as that tax revenue buoyancy, and of course it feeds into it, uh, we got the latest unemployment data for October. The unemployment rate remains close to historic lows of 4.3%. And in the last 12 months, there was a decline of 18,500 in the number of people unemployed. And that is coming against a backdrop of intense global economic uncertainty for much of that 12-month period. So the Ireland certainly is a mean, lean, green job-creating machine at the moment. And indeed, it is also a mean, lean, green tax-generating machine at the moment. Uh, two other Um, indicators of economic activity, the Purchasing Managers Index, the PMIs, uh, they are diffusion indexes, mean indices, excuse me, meaning that if the reading is above 50, um, more firms are expanding the contracting and vice versa. Well, this week we got the the Purchasing Managers Index for manufacturing. Um, It has weakened somewhat to 51.4 and that's down significantly from a year ago, but it's still in expansionary territory, which I think flies in the face of what is happening in most global economies at the moment. And the Personal Managers Index for the services side of the economy, it declined slightly in October as well, but it's still running at 53.2% or 53.2, excuse me, it's not a percent, it's a reading, okay? So uh, every indicator, or at least most of the indicators we're looking at here are still pretty decent. And um, I, I I keep getting asked the question, you know, is Ireland going to go into recession? If so, how long is it going to last? Um, I, I think technically Ireland is not going to go into recession, but I do think there will be the sect- sectors of the economy where it will feel like um, recession. So I would worry about the hospitality and retail sectors, particularly um, in the new year once Christmas is out of the way. But for the moment, um, the Irish economic story is a good one and certainly flies in the face of this ongoing, boring narrative about the failed state that Ireland is. Um, We're in a hell of a lot better position than most other countries at the moment. And I think um, we should applaud and actually enjoy and welcome that. It won't last forever, but for the moment, doing very, very well. Well, I appeal to your community spirit, Jim, and go back to my earlier question about any chance of a dig out. I'll arrange it, Chris. I'll talk. You've got friends in my places, haven't you? I get not really, but I get my people to talk to your people. Great, Uh, Chris. You 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 mentioned Sinn Fein there, and uh, I think it is is it is worth noting. We spoke the last podcast about Ono Brin saying he would sack the chief economist in the Department of Finance, John McCarthy, and uh, he then sort of apologised for that when the furore. Uh, resulted as it obviously was always going to uh, but 
you you point out to me today that um, Sinn Féin has formally withdrawn that comment. It's a kind of a Boris Johnson withdrawal, if you ask me. And I mean that in all senses of the word. Um, O'Brien is quoted in the Irish Times today as um, uh, apologising and no longer standing over the remarks that he made. But he also says that the chief economist at the Department of Finance should no longer be an advisor on housing policy. So he's he's withdrawn, but he hasn't um, his remarks. So it, it's it's interesting, and in in some very unkind quarters, it's been he's been referred to as quasi O'Brien. So um, I I think, but that that's very cruel, and far be it from me to to quote that. Um, I don't know what is there anything else on your agenda for today, Jim? Yeah, I'm I'm just wondering what you think. Um, I think the next pod we'll be recording will probably be in the midst of the midterm elections in the United States. Um, and, well, prediction and markets things, are saying the, the Republicans yeah. will get both houses. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would have felt 12 months ago that it was a shoe-in for the Republicans to regain control of both houses on the basis that, uh, number one, the Democratic Party had very thin majorities in both houses. And secondly, that... Um, you know, history shows that in midterm elections, there is always a swing away from the incumbent presidency's party. OK, and it wouldn't take much of a swift a switch to um, push both houses back into the Republican Party. But then in, in you know, over the last six months or so, when we've seen Mara Delaga raided by the FBI, when we see all of the stuff that's going on with Trump, there was a sort of a view that actually the Republican Party was damaged and that it wasn't inconceivable that the Democratic Party would retain at least one of those houses. But that seems to have changed again. As you say, the markets are now predicting um, both houses returning to the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, how do you interpret that? Because the view a year ago, at least my view would have been, well, if that happens, it's going to give fresh impetus to Donald Trump for a run at the White House next time round. Um, I'm not sure if that's still the case. I he does appear to me to be a a, a beaten document at this stage, but perhaps um, it will give that whole Republican MAGA party um, huge impetus going into the um, November 24 presidential election. I think it it's fast becoming almost irrelevant whether Donald Trump runs again, because what is quite clear is that the Republican Party is a post-Trump party, but only in the sense that Donald Trump himself doesn't matter. Trumpism is very much alive and well. It's full of conspiracy theorists. It's full of the Republican Party uh, en masse, not all of them, but the majority of them now clearly believe that the last election was stolen. They have all sorts of other conspiracy theories. Add it all up, I think that when they retake if they retake both houses next week, um, it's a very serious moment for American democracy. It could well be the end of American democracy. I would think it's as serious as that. Yeah, I, I saw um, uh, a, a clip uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, her name escapes me. She's a Republican running for the governorship of um, Arizona. And she was. she's regarded as, um, somebody has described her as Donald Trump in high heels. Um, but she is regarded as, um, you know, a potential future president or at least presidential candidate for the Republican Party. I cannot think of her name, but she was on stage and on one side of her, she had a convicted criminal 
Steve Bannon. Mm. Yes. Bloody mad stuff. You couldn't make it up. You couldn't make it up. And it it couldn't be more serious, unfortunately. Absolutely. Okay, Jim. Okay. Give us something to talk about next week, Chris. Yeah, um, there always is, isn't there? Have, yeah, there is. Yeah. Do have a good weekend. Okay. And great to talk again. And you, buddy. Take it easy. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 